speak, Lord. Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God be praised. What a delicious privilege it is to be with you today. I accepted Brother Williamson's, Williamson's invitation because I sensed that I would be spending eternity with you and it was about time for us to get to know each other. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Pastor Birdwell, thank you so much for receiving me so warmly, so authentically. Thank you so much. Um, I know this congregation is not spiritually and biblically malnourished. I can tell just by your singing. You have singing that is theomusicology. That's really what it is. Theomusicology. God musicology. Theology musicology. Where the Bible is literally sung. If there was no preaching today, you would have heard the redemptive story of Jesus and his love. So thank you, uh, Jason, for... Um, making sure that Christ is where Christ must be, exalted. The service is a Christocentric service, and we are gathered here, here to magnify him. So thank you. Brother Dan, thank you. You and Sister Becky, thank you for friendship over 23 years. It's a real joy. And all the elders that I've met and the people that I've met, uh, it's a joy, joyful time. This is... Um, a chance when we get a, an opportunity to participate in redemptive rhythm. We enter dress rehearsal for the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what's going on here. You think this is something. You wait. But thank you so much. It's good to, to worship with you. Uh, I want to call your attention to the book of Jonah. I want to read two sections, two portions of uh, the biblical text. I want to talk about beyond the border, beyond the border. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Hear these words from the word. Jonah 1, 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to that great city of Nineveh and preach against it because his wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the presence of the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to that great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three Days. The dominating question revolving around the book of Jonah is this. Can justice and mercy coexist? Can justice and mercy have a partnership? Or are justice and mercy two coins in the divine nature of God, or justice and mercy, two sides of the same coin existing together within the, the divine economy of God. 
I want to contend today that justice and mercy are not antithetical. Justice and mercy serve as an emblem of the complementarity of the work of God in redemption. We see this in Psalm 85, verse 10. Mercy and truth met together. Righteousness and peace kissed each other. We see this in that great word, in Romans 6.23 that we often quote, the wages of sin is dead, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We who deserve the wages get the gift because the gift of God is eternal life. Christ, who has the gift of eternal life, gets the wages, death, and he's nailed upon the cross when we are set free, we see justice and mercy in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He, Christ, who knew no sin, became sin, that we who are sinners might be made the righteousness of God. We see that truth in John 1, 14. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In the words of Eugene Peterson in his message Bible, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And Christ will receive the penalty. And we will receive God's eternal pardon. This is not a contradiction, but a paradox. Mercy and justice. A paradox occurs when two mutually exclusive statements meet at the intersection of apparent contradiction only to produce truth. It's what G.K. Chesterton, that celebrated British lay theologian of the Roman Catholic Church, meant when he said that a paradox is truth standing on its head, screaming for attention. Say, I know this looks ludicrous and ridiculous, but if you come closer, I will show you something that is profoundly true. Because if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to follow him paradoxically. He's the one who says, if you want to live, you, you have to die. You want to be exalted? You have to be humbled or base. You said you want to be first, you have to be willing to be last. You want to find your life, you've got to be willing to lose your life. You want to sit at the head of the table, you've got to sit at the end of the table. You want to be great, you have to be willing to be a servant. Or as Paul will put it in 2 Corinthians 12 and 10, I glory in my weaknesses, in my hindrances, in my insults. In my persecutions, in my difficulties. For when I am weak, that is when I am strong. Justice and mercy coexist and are two sides of the same coin within the divine economy of God. And that is Jonah's struggle. How can God be merciful to a nation? That is brutal and ruthless. How can God relent when the wrath of God needs to be poured upon them? And we see God giving them mercy when they deserve justice. The text says, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord. It's God's divine initiative. It is always the sovereign one seeking us. It is always God making the first move. Adam, where are you? Adam wasn't looking for God. Adam wasn't seeking God. He and Eve 
had tried to camouflage themselves and cover themselves up with leaves after they had sinned. And God came looking for Adam because God pursues us. In the words of Jesus, as he gives them to Luke in Luke 19 and 10, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Anytime someone says, I found the Lord's, it's bad theology. You didn't find the Lord. The Lord has never been lost. The Lord found us. He is always seeking us. The word of the Lord came to Jonah and said to Jonah, Jonah, rise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach against its wickedness because its wickedness has come up before me. There's the word, go. That's the word of the Great Commission, go. It's not negotiable, as the Ten Commandments are not ten suggestions. Go! It's an imperative. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded thee. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go! Go! Not stay, not remain, not stand up, gazing up into heaven as Jesus ascends, but go. Go to Nineveh. And that is a message Jonah did not want to, he- want to hear from God. Go to our arch enemy. Go to that nation that terrorizes other nations by skinning their opponents alive and piling up their skulls as if to say to anyone who wants to be opposing threat to Nineveh, this is what we do to our opponents. Go to Nineveh. It's like saying to Elie Wiesel, a Nobel Prize Prize, Prize winner and a survivor of the Holocaust who, went to, who, who, who left us a few years ago, go to Adolf Hitler and members of the Third Reich and offer benevolence to them. It's like saying to Eldritch Cleaver, a Black Panther, go to the Imperial Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan and run a revival among them. It's like what God said to me back in 2011. Go to that young man who murdered your son Needlessly, the robbery did not produce a single dime. A 17-year-old man fired one shot into his heart, and Tony made his transition at age 34 to heaven. And God says, and I'm in Kenya, witnessing and preaching. Go to that young man. Tell him that you love him, that you forgive him. You know, we've been communicating now these almost nine years, because I recognize that there is one who came to me, a sinner, condemned. I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on the cross in disgrace. But Jesus, God's son, took my place. Go! Hero? No, 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 no. But God was trying to show me that his blood reaches to the highest mountain and flows to the lowest valley. That his blood reaches us not only in the uttermost, but down to the guttermost. That there is no sin that cannot be cleansed. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven. God saves murderers like Moses. God saves murderers like David. God saves murderers like Paul, who was an accessory to those who were stoning Stephen. And therefore, we are called to go not only to nice sinners, but to nasty sinners, pimps and pushers, crack dealers, not those who are necessarily white-collar people like Robert Smith, nice tired and nice suit. Oh, no, 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 no. The down and outers that everybody has given up on, Go!
chapter 8 of the book of Acts, Paul has gone to serve as the church's number one public enemy. But in Acts chapter 9, he's the church's number one public defender. One chapter. In Acts chapter 8, Paul has gone to stop preachers from preaching. In Acts chapter 9, one chapter later, Paul becomes a preacher. In Acts chapter 8, Paul is giving orders. But in chapter 9, Paul is taking orders from the Lord. Lord, what do you have me to do? Just one chapter away. Some people are just one chapter away. Some of them are in our families. We've given up on them. Neighbors, given up on them. Relatives, given up on them. One chapter away. Go to Nineveh. That great city, Nineveh, the capital of Syria, is not in its heyday now. Uh, Its greatness has begun to wane a bit. And yet it still musters power. After all, it is Nineveh, capital of Assyria, that will come and take the northern kingdom into captivity in 722 B.C. And God, you want me to go and preach to them against their great wickedness. Their sin has come up before me. Carl Menninger of the Houston Clinic many years ago, probably 35 years ago, wrote a little small book. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed that he had to write it. I don't know why a theologian or a pastor didn't write it, but the type of, title of the book was, Whatever Became of Sin. He had to talk about sin, a medical doctor. And we don't want to talk about sin today. We want to use euphemisms for sin. We don't commit adultery, we just have affairs. Uh, We don't lie, we just prevaricate. We don't steal, we just embezzle and pilfer. But God calls it sin. And you can't spell sin without I being in the middle. S-I-N, not just overtly, but covertly. Not just in terms of action, but in terms of attitude. It's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my mother, not my father, not my sister, not my brother, not the preacher, not the elders. That's what we used to sing in our little church years ago. But it's me, oh Lord. You want to have a real revival? Stand here and draw a circle around yourself and say, Lord, the one who needs to be forgiven, renewed, strengthened is standing within this circle. And if every one of us would do that, It would be amazing what God would do in our church, in our families, in our livelihood. Lord, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. Preach against the wickedness of that city. And the Bible says... And Jonah ran from the presence of the Lord. How preposterous. How ridiculous. How do you run from the presence of ubiquity? How do you run from the presence of omnipresence? How do you run from the presence of one that my mother would refer to by saying, God is so big if that if he moves anywhere in the universe, he has to bump into himself. How do you run from God? How do you run from who David was talking about in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10? Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I sin up into heaven, you're there. Not you will be there, but you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the earth, There your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. No, Jonah is not running from God. Jonah is running from himself in terms of his own calling. Because when you try to run from God, you run right into God. And he's always there waiting, running from a call. And his gifts are irrevocable. When he calls, there is no negotiating. It's very possible, and I see a lot of young people here. Here's your great challenge. Right now, you go to church. 
like I went to church when I was your age. When I was your age, I was on drugs. Uh, my mother and father drugged me everywhere. They drugged me to Sunday school. They <laughs> drugged me to worship service. They drugged me to prayer meeting. And then after I finished high school, it was up to me. Some of you are going to be tempted to put God on hold once you get out of your family's house. And you don't have to go to church. They won't know. Or go to church sparingly, periodically. Something must take place in your life where going to church and serving God and worshiping God is something you cannot help. You have the can't help it. It's there. There is a relationship. Whether people think it's cool or not. And if you run away from your call, you will run away from contentment and satisfaction. Some of you are sitting here now. You are living in the zip code of an active church life. But you're not living in the address of God's specific call for your life. Specifically, what is God saying to you? Is it a call? To the mission field, foreign or domestic? Is it a call to something else that is distasteful, belittling, challenging? And yet God says, go to Nineveh. And Jonah ran from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. If you, fo- if you follow uh, him, you'll see that it's always a descending order for him. He goes down to Joppa. He gets on a ship and goes down to the bottom of the ship. And then he goes down into the water when he's thrown overboard. Then he goes down into the belly of the fish. It's down, 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 because when we disobey God, we're going down. Oh, but I make six figures. You're just a six-figure making going down person. I drive a Mercedes Benz. Wonderful. It's good. But when you and I get out of the will of God, it's something that's driving us. And we've lost that peace that passes all. I'm not talking about salvation. Oh, no, 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 no. David says, restore unto me the joy, not the salvation, Psalm 51, but the joy of your salvation. Got salvation. But the joy, the intimacy is there. And coming to church becomes an event rather than a spiritual experience that I have with my Lord. Jonah went down to Joppa, the text says, and he found a ship. He found a ship going to Tarshish. So convenient. Because the devil is always going to have a ship conveniently located for you and I when we want to get out of God's will. You know, you don't really need to learn how to sin. Children, you don't have to teach children how to steal and how to lie and all of that because we are born in sin and shaped in iniquity. Uh, they're selfish. Watch them at Christmas time. Uh, they want to play with others' toys but don't want anyone to play with their toys so that when others' toys get, get broke, uh, they have their own. I mean, that's just, you don't have to go to class to learn how to act in a selfish way at Christmas time. It's just in us. And Jonah went there and Satan had a ship conveniently placed for him going the opposite direction that God wanted him to go. A ship going to Tarshish, Spain. From Joppa to Tarshish is 2,500 miles. That's the distance from Atlanta to Seattle, Washington. From Joppa to Nineveh is about 500 miles. You get, it's, yeah, sinning takes you a long way off from where God wants you to be. And you and I become prodigals. We're still a son. Hmm. The intimacy is lost, but the relationship is not. Still a prodigal son. And we go to the far country. And the further you go away, the further you have to come back. And God woos us, calls us back to himself. And he gets on this ship. Mm. 
and pays, the Bible says, he paid his fare. Because you can't ride the ship of Satan as a hobo. It's going to cost you something. There is a high price for low living. It always is. And is it worth it? One midnight stand. One end move of indiscretion. One word. One look. Just one. Is it worth your family? Is it worth your testimony? Is it worth your life? And Jonah got on that ship. And the Bible says he paid his fare and went down to the bottom of the bottom deck of the ship and went to sleep. And a storm broke out. Because verse 5 says, 4 and 5 says, God sent a storm. And Jonah is asleep impervious, not affected or influenced at all by the storm. Because that's really what sin will do. It'll rock you to sleep and even numbs you to the point that things that you ordinarily wouldn't even think about now become a kind of uh, playground for your mind. It's, it's Martin Luther who says, I, you can't keep Birds from flying over your head, but you can keep birds from making a nest in your head so that you become obsessed with it. And sin doesn't bother you anymore. In fact, you can miss church three or four Sundays. First time it bothered you. Second time, third or fourth time. And we become so enamored with sin that sin no longer brings conviction in our lives. Jonah went to sleep while everybody else's life is in jeopardy. And that captain checked, if you will, his passenger list and saw that seat 7A had a missing person. And he searched the ship and went down and saw Jonah sleep. And I want to say he probably was snoring, unaffected uninfluenced, undisturbed, unperturbed by what was taking place and said to him, oh sleeper, wake up. Wake up and call on your God. Jonah has not yet prayed. He's a prophet, but he's a prayerless prophet at this particular time. Sleeping at the wrong time. Sleeping at a time when there was so much danger and Jonah is brought up on the top level of the ship. And the Bible says that they started throwing cargo over, trying to lighten the ship. But remember, the Bible says, verse 4 and 5, God sent the storm. God sent the wind. I can understand why God would send a wind in this instance. Because there's someone on board who is disobedient. And God is trying to tell him something. God is trying to wake him up and bring him back to a place of reality. But how do you understand Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, where Jesus says to the 12 disciples, get on the boat. Get in the boat. We're going across the Sea of Galilee. When they get get in the boat, it's a day of tranquility. But after a while, turbulence takes place. And they're doing the same thing, trying to dip out water, but the more water they dip out, the more water comes in. And they sue Jesus for non-support. Master, don't you care that we perish? Why would a storm break out when they are just obeying the will of God? They did exactly what Jesus says. Get in the boat, and yet a storm came. We must be wary of hearing messages and reading books etc., that proclaim that if you follow Jesus, then all your troubles are over. No sickness, no trials, no tests. Your best life now. We must be wary because Jesus has said in John 16, 33, 
in this world, you will have tribulation. I'd rather listen to him. You're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have already overcome the world. So when you serve the Lord and you wonder why the bottom of life has dropped out, and you wonder why this diagnosis, and you wonder why this job layoff, and you're serving the Lord, don't think it's strange when you encounter fiery dots of suffering. Know that even though you are in a boat that's being tossed and driven on this restless sea of time, that he is in the boat. Stop complaining about the storm. Remember, as long as he is in the boat, he's the captain of the sea. And because he's the captain of the sea, he can stand up when he wants to and say, to the wind, be still. Say to the waves, peace. And immediately there will be a calm. And they tried to keep the boat afloat, but God sent the wind. They knew this was an unusual kind of wind. These sailors had never seen anything like it. And so they decided we need to cast lots to see who has caused this. Because everyone is praying to his God. But those gods could not steal the storm. And the lot fell on Jonah. Rather than Jonah confessing and saying, I'm the culprit. You don't need to cast lots. He had to be smoked out. He was not willing to confess. Like Achan, who was responsible for the defeat at Ai because he had stolen a Babylonian garment and a wedge of silver and some other items that were to be put in the uh, future tabernacle of the Lord. Lots had to be cast for him from the tribe to the clan to the family to the per person. And here is Achan. Oh, it's like Judas who knew exactly that it was him. Everyone said, when Jesus said, one of you will uh, betray me, and all of the mass is it I. All Judas needed to say was, it's me. But he didn't. And you know what? God is speaking to each of us about our own sin. Uh, Paul, who went to the third heaven, you know how he describes himself? I am the least of the apostles. And the chief of sinners. I think if I pastor the church again, I think I would write on the marquee, Robert Smith, pastor, comma, chief of sinners. Because we don't look at sin the way God looks at it. We look at it in, in such a way as a mistake rather than something that grace has to continue to work and on and reveal and bring before our face so that we are saying to God, Take it away. Or in the words of Alexander White, Lord, take what I can no longer give. Take it from me. Lord, I give myself to thee. And whatever I can no longer give, I invite you to take. Because there's some things that are in us, so embedded in us, and have been there so long that it's going to require God to take it. Now I'm looking at that clock. That's about 10 after. Is that right? Uh, that's, that's a satanic clock there. <laughs> yeah, that's all there's to it. That clock's satanic. Yeah, but I'm going to. Uh, all, right, all right. All right. Let me just run across the field now. The Bible says, they asked Jonah, Jonah, where are you from? What do you do? What have you done? Who are you? Jonah says, look, I'm a Hebrew. I worship a God who rules the heavens, the land, and the sea. So I guess if you could get beyond the heavens, land, and the sea, you'd get away from God. But since he created all three, heavens, land, and sea, he is the God of omnipotence. He's the God of great power. That's the God that I serve. And Jonah admitted to them, uh, I've been running away from the Lord, verse number 11. He had already told them that. I'm running away from God. And if you want to stop this storm, you need to throw me overboard. I can never understand why Jonah didn't just jump overboard. I don't know why he needed someone to throw him overboard. But he jumped. He, he could have just jumped overboard, and the storm would have been stilled. But they asked God because they were so human. God, don't hold us accountable. That's what the text says. 
for this man's death. Don't hold us accountable for that. They did everything they could to keep him alive, but you can't fight God. Your arms are too short to box with God, and you can wrestle with God and try all you want to get around what he's called you to do, and he'll be there, unrelenting, unyielding, until you finally say to God, I yield, I yield. I cannot hold out any longer. The text says, they give me the 1020 at the most, so let me use those seven minutes and pick up uh, next, next time. The Bible says, when they did that, threw him overboard, there was a great calm instantaneously, immediately. No more roughness of the waves. The wind was no longer boisterous and tumultuous. Mm. Instantaneously. There is a calm. And they realized their God could not do that. They realized it was the God of Jonah. So the text says in verse 16, they, as a result of this, feared the Lord. They made sacrifices to the Lord. And they made vows to the Lord. They believe. Wow. These heathen believe without a sermon. Hear me when I tell you this. The Holy Spirit was moving. How do I know that? Because the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction. John chapter 16, verses 7 to 9. When the Spirit of truth has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgments. And oftentimes we talk about God the Father and Christ the Son of God, but we leave out the Holy Spirit as if the Holy Spirit is the stepchild of the Trinity. As if the Holy Spirit is at best a footnote. He moves and brings these sailors to conviction to the point that they fear the Lord. They take in sacrifice to the Lord, probably not with fire on a boat, some kind of sacrifice. And they make their vows to the Lord. And the Bible says in verse 17 that when Jonah is thrown overboard, God prepared, provided a fish to catch Jonah, to keep him from drowning. And Jonah will stay in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, uh, too many people just look at the book of Jonah as a great fish story. Good to read the book of Jonah as an allegory. It represents this. The sailors represent this. The captain represents this. The fish represents this. The boat represents this. The Mediterranean Sea represents this. Mm. Or a good bedtime story for your children. Or a good story to have in your Sunday school class of seniors where the youngest senior is uh, 85 years old. This is not a fish story. It's not about the fish. The fish is mentioned four times in 789 words. God is mentioned 39 times in 789 words. This is a book about a great God, not a great fish. A great God who can do anything but fail. And God provided the fish. I know this doesn't make sense. It's not logical. You're right. But God is not logical. God is supralogical. He's beyond logic. How can a man stay in a belly of a fish three days? Well, if God provided it, he can put ventilation in it. Uh, He can put air conditioning in it. He can put heating in it. He provided it. This is the same God who came from nowhere and stood on nothing on the day of creation and told nothing to become something. And on the first day, God created light and said, let there be light. And light came traveling at 186,000 miles a second. First day, let there be light. Fourth day, let there be the sun, the moon, and the stars. Light the first day. Three days later, here comes the sun, moon, and star. Can't work that way. No, it's got to be sun, moon, and stars. Then light. No, because light doesn't come from sun, moon, and stars when it comes to its, to its etymology, its origin. Light comes from the one who is the light, the light of the world. I know it's not logical, and in your life, don't try to figure God out. Trust him. Well, you know, this is uh, 
this can't happen. God can't do it. I'm amazed at Christians who don't believe in miracles until they need one. And when they need one, they see that there is no secret what God can do. What he's done for others, he will do for you. And God provided a fish, and that fish served as an underwater hotel for three days and three nights in order that Jonah might have a chance to reconsider if he really wanted to go to Tarshish or if he wanted to change his mind and go to Nineveh like God told him to go the first in the first place. Chapter 2, very quickly, verse 1, Jonah prayed. First time prayer is mentioned. Prayed. That's why we don't need prosperity theology. That won't make you pray. You need, Robert Smith, some adversity theology. <laughs> how do you trust God when adversity comes? God knows how to bring us to a place of prayer. So the Bible says Jonah prayed. Because these three days or three nights in the belly of the fish is foreshadowing and is anticipatory of the death and resurrection of Jesus. As Matthew puts it in Matthew 12, 39 to 41, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of earth three days and three nights, and on the third day be resurrected from the dead. It is a typology of what will happen to Christ in terms of Christ's death and his resurrection on the third day. The Bible says in verse number nine, not only did Jonah pray, but he sung a song of thanksgiving. Praying and singing in the belly of the fish. Not after you get out, but while you're in, he sings. And then he comes up with this wonderful theological truth. He says to the Lord, salvation is of the Lord. Oh, you get it. God can save anyone he wants to. He can save those who are socioeconomically deprived. He can save white people, black people, brown, yellow, and red people. He can save uneducated people. He can save everybody because salvation comes from the Lord. And I must not think that only those who look like me and have my theological penchant will be the ones who will be saved. There will not be any Baptists in heaven. There won't be any Methodists in heaven. There ain't going to be any Catholics in heaven. There's not going to be any Episcopalians in heaven. The only people who will be in heaven will be Christians. Because heaven doesn't know anything about labels. If you go to heaven with a label, it will fall off. If you go to hell with a label, it will burn off. The only thing you will have is, well done, thy good and faithful servant. My time is up. You don't know how this bothers me. (laughs) Ten more minutes. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Jonah did two of the three things that these pagan sailors did. Just two. Remember, they, verse 16 of chapter 1, they took and feared the Lord. They took and sacrificed and they took and vowed. He sacrifices, he vows, but nothing is said about him fearing God. But after he had prayed and sung and made the acknowledgement that salvation comes from the Lord, the Bible says that the fish spewed him out. I don't want to say that because some of you have just eaten breakfast or you're going to eat something, but up chucked. Mm. And he, the fish must have been in, had a GPS, a navigational system installed, but he took and vomited him on the land of Assyria, the precinct, the vicinity of Nineveh. And Jonah, though it took three days to get across Nineveh, he made his way immediately to his preaching spot. And the Bible says, verse 3, the word of the Lord came to to Jonah second time. Second time. Not altered. Because the Bible does not need to be adjusted. The Bible needs to be trusted. Don't adjust the Bible. Don't transform the Bible. Let the Bible speak. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Like the word of the Lord comes to Jacob the second time. Go back to Bethel. 
like the word of the Lord came to Joshua the second time. Go and fight against Ai again now that Achan and those that are part of his family have been disposed. And the prodigal son came to himself and goes back home. And I'm grateful for second chances. I wonder if there's anybody here who knows what it's like to have a second chance. How about uh, a thousandth chance? How about two million chances? And God continues to extend grace to us. Not cheap grace, costly grace, as Bonhoeffer would say. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And Jonah went to his preaching spot to preach one sermon. The sermon consists of five words in Hebrew and eight words in English. And that's what saying, if you don't repent in 40 days, you're history. God's going to wipe you off the face of the map. He preached that sermon to Nineveh. And the Bible says that the citizens of Nineveh took and covered themselves with sackcloth. And when the word got to the king, the king came off the throne, took off his robes, and sat down in dust and covered himself with sackcloth. And says, if we repent, maybe God will relent. I wonder what would happen to our nation. I'm not concerned about your party. I don't care whether you're Democrat, Republican, or independent. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about if all of our leaders would understand that God is not only our only hope, he is our only help. And if we turn against him, he is our greatest threat. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. We don't have a monopoly on God. We are on God's docket for destruction if we turn our back on him and not turn back to him. Look what happened to Greece. Look what happened to Medo-Persia. Look what happened to Rome. Look what happened to Egypt. Look what happened to all these nations. And we need our leaders who stand in the pulpit to turn the prison into a pulpit and not allow the, the, the prison to imprison the pulpit and teach the word of God and call our people back to God. This is a wonderful time to be a Christian, to be light. I'm not talking about politics. Don't socialize the gospel. Gospelize the social. Let the gospel speak to the situation in the context of the light that we're in. We have an answer. No use of saying God is still on the throne. God is not still on the throne. Get rid of the word still. Just say God is on the throne. Still, where is it going to go? Is he going to abdicate the throne? No. When other thrones have been emptied, God is on the throne. And sure enough, the king says, no one can eat or drink anything, even animals, until God has declared that he has lifted the wrath that was to fall upon us. Perhaps if we repent, God will relent. Verse 16 of chapter 3. Sure enough, chapter 4, very quickly in four minutes. The people repented. And Jonah got mad. Here's a preacher who didn't want any converts. His attitude was wrong. But even though he had a bad attitude, it did not affect the message. And the Bible says, that he said to God, I knew you were going to do that. I knew you were going to change your verdict. Because in essence, God is immutable. That is, God doesn't change at all. Uh, the Copernican Revolution, which attacked the theologians of that day, really said that it is not the earth that's the center of the solar system, but the sun. And all the planets, nine when I was in school, is eight now, revolved <laughs> around the sun in a merry-go-round system, and they have not collided since the day of creation. The sun never turns. The earth tilts and turns. And because of its tilting, it experiences its seasons. Summer, winter, springtime, and harvest. God is the sun. The S-U-N of righteousness that rises with healing in his wing never turns. But when we turn to him, he doesn't change. We change, and we put ourselves in a position to be forgiven and to be blessed and to be restored. And Jonah gets very upset and says, I'm so angry I, should, I, I could die. And God provides, there's that Hebrew word, the same word that we found in Jonah 1.17. 
God provided a, a plant that grew. And then God provided a worm that ate up the plant. And then God provided a scorching east wind. Each time, Jonah had nothing to do with it. He liked the plant, but he didn't like the worm. He liked mercy, but he didn't like justice. And God was trying to give him a picturesque example of how mercy and justice met together and righteousness and peace kissed each other. And the book ends with the question, shouldn't I be concerned about over 120,000 people in this city? I leave you with this. It was a great thing to see that king come off of his throne, take his robes off, and sit in dust and cover himself with sackcloth. But there was another king who came off of his throne. Don't you see it in Philippians 2, 5 through 11? Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, thought it not robbery, a thing to be competed for, a thing to be grasped, to be equal with God, though he was equal to God. But he emptied himself and took on the form of a slave, condescended, and was obedient to death, even death on the cross. From exaltation to humiliation, but back to exaltation. For God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He came beyond the border. He left his mighty throne in glory to bring to us the redemption story. He took on a body that could be beaten and pummeled. And he died a death that we deserve to give us a life that we don't. Therefore, we sing with all the power within us, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of Lord. He came and went beyond the border so that we might go beyond the border and tell others about a God who has justice and mercy conjoined and coexistent within his divine nature. God be praised. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we thank you for going beyond the border and placing yourself on earth where you would be rejected even by your own, where you'd be crucified, buried, but the Holy Spirit would raise our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. We give you power and ask that you'd help us to go to those that are not like us, to go to places that we are uncomfortable in, to say words to people that we know will reject us because you came and went beyond the border that we might be saved. I commit us to you now. Give us a new sense of renewal and commitment to our call. In Jesus' name, amen.